you need to be here. Even if you get here, got up an hour earlier, you still manage to get here at the same time. I put myself in that category. So we need to have some consideration, get here early enough to uh, drop off the kids and get out of the downstairs area before class begins. So the deacons are going to become sheep herders for a while just to make sure. So don't take offense at that. When they start nudging you along, just be thankful I'm not down there with a shepherd's crook beating you along, okay? Well, now that we have that announcement out of the way, we can focus on the important <coughs> issues of the morning. Yes. Yes. Now, he's home now doing well? And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study of the scripture this morning, let's make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord. We need to use 1 John 1, 9 if we confess our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is an aspect of our priesthood. It is part of our privacy. We simply admit or acknowledge our sins in the privacy of our soul to God the Father. We are instantly cleansed and forgiven, and we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is necessary for learning and assimilating Bible doctrine into our lives. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity and privilege we have this morning to look at your word and to study about your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that he is, who he is, and what he has done for us. And Father, as we study these things, may they challenge our thinking. May we look at life differently as a result of this, understanding all that you have done for us, both in terms of our salvation and our spiritual life, that we may be challenged to apply these things consistently, that we might grow to spiritual maturity, that you might be glorified. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of John, so open your Bibles with me to John chapter 5, verse 10. John chapter 5, verse 10. last couple of days I've been wrestling with a sore throat, sinus. I don't know if I'm catching the bug that everybody is catching and passing around, but um, 
I did okay the first hour, but I already feel like I'm about to have a vocal blowout, so we'll just see how long we make it through the, through the, uh, through the hour. John chapter 5, when we begin, we'll be at verse 10. John chapter 5 starts the second major division within the gospel. Starts at 5.1 and extends down through the end of chapter 12 at verse 50. In these chapters, the writer, the apostle John, is showing us how the nation of Israel rejected Jesus as Messiah. In these chapters, we will go through six different confrontations that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And what John is showing us is that Jesus presented overwhelming evidence to the nation that he was who he claimed to be. Remember his purpose. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. The purpose of the gospel is to demonstrate in almost a courtroom setting by the marshalling of various uh, empirical signs, the miracles that Jesus performed, plus the witnesses that are described in the gospel and to show on the basis of the empirical data and the testimony of the witnesses that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the promised one of God, the Messiah of the Old Testament, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Jesus presented overwhelming evidence to the Pharisees, to the leaders of Israel and to the people of Israel so that they have no excuse for rejecting him. The first confrontation is described in this chapter. It began with the healing, which we studied last week, that took place at the pool at Bethesda that was located just north, probably about a quarter of a mile north of the temple precincts in Jerusalem inside the Sheep Gate. The first 16 verses describe the healing itself when Jesus went to Jerusalem for the feast, it's an unspecified feast. It could be uh, tabernacles, it could be atonement, uh, could be Pentecost. But it's one of the major feasts. And during that time, Jesus very quietly, unobtrusively, walks into the pool at Bethesda. Now, there's not a crowd. His disciples aren't with him. Jesus is moving about. There were probably hundreds of people inside this this area, this, this pool, where uh, there was just a pathetic sight where all of the lame and crippled of Israel, uh, I mean of Jerusalem in that area were gathered around. There could have been as many as two or three hundred. They're sprawled out waiting for the waters to bubble up. There was a, uh, a mythological belief, le- legend, <clears throat> that when the waters were stirred, that an angel stirred it up and the first one in was healed. Now the Bible doesn't affirm that as being true, that this was an actual fact, simply recounts this as the legend. So it's a very pathetic scene, and there's this one man that Jesus picks out of the crowd, and Jesus walks over to him and leans over and says, ask him, do you want to get well? It's not a crowd scene. The man responds, Jesus says, the man responds that there's nobody to put him into the water when it's stirred up. Uh, Somebody always beats me to it. And Jesus commands him to get up, to pick up his pallet, and walk. Now, the last phrase of verse 9 tells us what's going on here. It was the Sabbath that day. Jesus picks this particular incident on this particular Sabbath to throw the gauntlet down in front of the Pharisees. This is not the first miracle that Jesus has performed on the Sabbath. The other Gospels record record 
three or four other miracles of, of healing, casting out demons, and other things that Jesus did on the Sabbath that had already created a confrontation with the Pharisees over their sabbatical rules. It's on this particular Sabbath, though, that Jesus is in Jerusalem at the temple, and he is going to make a, an issue out of this incident. In fact, this is one of the most critical confrontations that takes place in the life of Jesus, and it is it gives rise to a discourse beginning in verse 16 that is called the Son of God Discourse. This is one of the least studied and least known discourses in the Gospels, and in this Jesus instructs the Pharisees about his own relationship to God claiming to perform the same works as God, and by making this claim, he is in fact claiming to be equal to God and full undiminished deity. And the result is that from this point on, the Pharisees are going to make it their number one priority to kill him. That's why this is important. What he says about himself in this discourse is very important for us in understanding who he is and who our Savior is and what he has done for us. Another point by way of introduction is that this trip is not recorded in any of the other Gospels because it is not relevant to their particular messages. But for John, who has not told us about the other incidences on on the uh, Sabbath, John takes this as the key incident to to relate in order to portray the rising tension, the animosity, the antagonism that is existing between the religious authorities and Jesus. Remember, religion is hostile to grace. It is always antagonistic to grace. Religion is man seeking God's approval and blessing by man's efforts. Christianity is not a religion in that sense. Christianity is a relationship based upon grace. Grace means that God does all the work and we simply accept it by faith alone in Christ alone. Religion emphasizes morality, ritual, and guilt. Religion emphasizes the negative, what you do wrong, how you violate the prohibitions uh, that, they are, that are established in the religious creed. And the result of that is to emphasize guilt. Guilt is the great motivator in religion. The major religious systems or denominations that we're familiar with often motivate by guilt. How often do we see it portrayed on, on sitcoms on television or, or stand-up comedians make cracks about their religious or ethnic heritage making a point that, well, you know, that's because I'm Jewish or I'm Catholic or something and, and so I was brought up motivated by guilt. Religious systems always motivate on the basis of guilt, and so the focus is always on failures rather than on successes. In grace, the focus is on success. It is not on failure. Grace focuses on the fact that God did everything, that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Uh, The finished work of Christ means that there is nothing we can add to it. Jesus Christ paid it all, and that emphasizes the absolute sufficiency of grace, which is the major theme, or a major theme, in this whole episode. Now let's wrap up, or pick up, where we ended last time in verse 10. After Jesus healed the man, he disappears quietly in the crowd. He just The man gets up, picks up his pallet, and as his neighbors all of a sudden realize that this lame man who's been there for 38 years is now walking, and they attract his attention, they focus on him, 
Jesus just steps back and walks away, and nobody sees where he goes. Now, as this man gets up, he's going to go to the temple to make his sacrifice of thanksgiving, and as he heads there, the Pharisees become aware of what's going on and confront him. They don't care that he's healed. Notice this is the superficiality of religion. Their rules have been violated. We don't care that this man who's been crippled for 38 years and has been a pathetic side down at the pool of Bethesda all that time is now walking. That he didn't even have to go through physical therapy. He's, he's up, he's strong, he's active, and he's carrying his pallet. And that's in violation of our sabbatical rules. So they confront him and they say, it's a Sabbath, it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Now this means that we have to take a little time to review the significance of the Sabbath and what's going on here. Turn with me to the Old Testament, second book of the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Four verses describe for us the mandate in the Mosaic Law, in the Ten Commandments, for Sabbath observance. Remember, the Mosaic Law was given to Israel. It was not given to Gentiles. The Mosaic Law was given to to, uh, uh, the nation Israel as their law code for their nation. It is comparable to our Constitution. The Ten Commandments is comparable to the uh, preamble to our Constitution. It simply states ten precepts, ten mandates that are the foundation for the entire law code given to Israel and the basis for their freedom. It is not for Gentiles. It was never for any any other people in the Old Testament time, only the Jews, and it was temporary. The Mosaic Law was a conditional covenant, part of the, uh, the covenant that was designed just for Israel, and it was ended with the coming or with the crucifixion of Christ. Romans chapter 10 says that Christ is the end of the law. So the Sabbath was only for uh, observance in Israel during the Old Testament period. Here's the mandate, verse, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That means to keep it set apart, to sanctify it. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days, and then verse 11 gives the reason for the Sabbath. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. A couple of points for present application of this principle. First of all, it establishes a six-day work week, not a five-day work week. And it seems that no matter how people try to change things, so the unions come along and try to get a five-day work weekend, we always end up working the same number of hours sooner or later. Uh, we all, Whether we work in those five days, we may do six days of work in five days and then really collapse during the other two days. But it seems like that principle cannot be changed. It is built into the creation as a natural order. Second thing we see is that there is a principle of rest here that should be followed consistently in our lives. And that means the sabbatical principle is regular rest or vacation time. 
And that's, that's the application. That doesn't mean that you have to set up some kind of legalistic principle and always take Sunday off and never do anything, but that just as God took that day of, of rest, and we'll see what that means in a minute, we need to take time off on a regular basis to recoup and refocus and regenerate our, our minds and our thinking. People who work seven days a week, 10 or 12 hours a day, burn out very quickly and begin to lose focus on their priorities and what is really important in life. So there is a general principle uh, that it's important to have rest and relaxation in life on a periodic basis. Third point of application relates to the creation model itself. What this tells us is that God took six days to make the heavens and the earth. Now, I don't want to go into a detailed exegesis of this, but in Genesis 1.1, it says God made the heavens. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. And there we have the Hebrew word bara, B-A-R-A. There are several different words in the Hebrew for creation. Only God is the subject of this particular verb. Only God can bara, create. Man can't. Its root meaning is to create, and we know from comparing Scripture with Scripture that in Genesis 1, this means ex nihilo creation, creation out of nothing. That's not the root meaning of bara. I don't want somebody who hears this tape, who knows something about Hebrew, to think that I'm making a basic exegetical fallacy here. Bara does not have as, it, as its inherent root meaning to create something out of nothing. It gets that from its context and from comparing other scripture with scripture. But it speaks about God's unique creation. Then we have another word, asa, A-S-A-H, which is the basic word for to make. Just a very general word, to do or to make. And then there's a third word, yatsar, which is Y-A-T-Z-A-R, and that means to fashion or to mold. And there's still a couple of other words yet, but those are the important ones. Now, in Genesis 1.1, we have the original creation of the universe. Whatever that looked like, it wasn't the present universe. It might have just been the creation of a space-time continuum and not necessarily included even the stars. It might have been empty space. The heavens refers to the spatial dimension of the universe. The earth refers to this planet. You don't have the creation of stars until the fourth day in Genesis chapter 1. Then there is a period of time, and then 1-2 comes along and says... And starts with a construction in the Greek that indicates a contrast and says, but the earth became without form and void. And that term in the Greek is, to, I mean, the Hebrew is tohu vabohu, which refers usually to judgment, always indicates a judgment. And the earth is in darkness and the waters move on the face of the earth. And all of this imagery in that verse is used throughout the scriptures to speak of divine judgment and evil. So what happens in this period is the fall of Lucifer, who becomes Satan the accuser, and he takes one-third of the angels with him. 
And those become the fallen angels, and you have the beginning of the angelic conflict. Now, a slight correction here that I want everybody to understand. In the early part of the 19th century, there was a a Presbyterian uh, clergyman in Scotland who developed what came to be known as the gap theory. And that view, see the idea that there is a time difference between 1-1 and 1-2 can be traced back into the early Middle Ages at least. Various rabbis held to that position by at least the 9th or 10th century A.D., if not earlier. What makes the gap theory the gap theory is that he wanted to assimilate Christianity with historical geology at the time. So what he did was he came along and said all the geologic ages and the zoological chart and all of the fossilized animals and various other fossilized men like Neanderthal man and various others all fit into this period. It was a pre-Adamic creation and a pre-Adamic race. Now, the basic problem with that, I'm getting far afield from John, but we don't get a chance to talk about this very often, so I'm going to get a chance to, to hit this one on the, hit this nail on the head. What happened here is that if, if all of the geologic evidence of a catastrophe, all of the fossils, they must be taken as one fossil column. You can't say, okay, these fossils took play, reveal the pre-Adamic creation, and these fossils came from the flood. They, the, because they're interspersed and they come in different orders and different places in the geologic column and different places in the Earth's crust, you have to treat the entire geologic column and, and the, all the fossil evidence as having been created by the same catastrophe. It was either created here in some kind of, as a result of the judgment on a pre-Adamic creation or it was created by the global catastrophe of Noah's flood. If it was created here, then Noah's flood left no evidence whatsoever in the geologic record. And that is patently absurd if you look at the data in the scriptures on how vast and how turbulent and how cataclysmic the geologic flood was. I mean, the Noah's flood was. And all of the evidence there too. So that means that you have to take the entire geologic uh, structure, the, the, the timetable, the ages, I mean, the, uh, the strata, the fossils, all of that, and that has to be as a result of Noah's flood in Genesis 6 through 9. That means that, uh, and also you have theological evidence that if sin is the cause of death, that if you have death in any way, shape, or form prior to Adam's fall, then sin is not, I mean, then death is not the result of sin. Let me say that one more time. If, if death is the result of Adam's disobedience, which was the, which was the warning, the prohibition in Genesis 2-7, on the day you eat from this, you will surely die. That spiritual death, which had as its consequence physical death. There was no physical death in perfect environment. Physical death, according to 1 Corinthians 15, physical death is the result of Adam's sin. Physical death in the entire realm of nature is the result of Adam's sin. If physical death occurred before Adam sinned, in other words, if there was one creature that died in order to have the survival of the fittest, the survival of the fittest means that the fit survive and the unfit die. 
So that means that the basic mechanism of evolution is death. So if you have one thing die prior to Adam's sin, then death is not the result of Adam's sin and Jesus doesn't need to go to the cross. And if Jesus doesn't need to go to the cross, then Christianity is not true. That's why the whole theory of evolution from start to finish is a major attack on the cross and there can be no compromise with it at all. It is a theological attack. It is not just a biological, geological, or scientific attack. It is basically theological in its assertions because it is saying death is normal to the created order. And the Bible says that God created everything perfect. Death is abnormal. It's the consequence of Adam's disobedience. And when God restores everything, there will be no more death. So death is an abnormal condition. That's why it hurts so much when people die. It is a reminder of the horror of sin in the universe. Okay, we're far afield from our subject. Let's come back. Original creation, then there is this unspecified time period between 1-1 and 1-2, and then there are six days of restoration. The key word in the six days of restoration is the Hebrew word asa, right here. This is the word that we find in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. So the focus there is on the restoration pattern that God establishes in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Now somebody always comes along and says, well, how do you know that those six days were literal 24-hour days? And the reason we know that is right here in Exodus Chapter 20, verse 11. Because if these days, if the days in Genesis are figurative and just refer to lengthy periods of time, then the days in Exodus 20 are figurative. And that would, wouldn't make any sense at all. Remember, Moses wrote Genesis 1 and Moses wrote Exodus 20. So, the same writer writes both passages, and he must be consistent with himself. If he meant literal 24-hour days in Genesis 1, then he means literal 24-hour days here. And he obviously meant literal 24-hour days here, because he's telling people to only work for six literal 24-hour days, and take the seventh one off, because that's exactly how God did it. So, if, those, if you want to try to take those, those days in Genesis 1... As, as figurative, then you, once again, you denude the Bible of any power, any authority, and any truth whatsoever, and you pull the rug out from under Christianity as a whole. You destroy it. So, verse 11 sets, takes the pattern from God. Now, that goes back to the original creation that the Father designed the universe. The Son did the construction work on it. He was the construction engineer. And it's the Holy Spirit who does the renovation of it. Genesis 1-2 says the Holy Spirit moved or hovered like a mother hen. That's the word comes from. Hovered like a mother hen over its eggs. The Holy Spirit hovered over the darkness of the earth and is involved in the renovation of it. So each member of the Trinity is involved in the creation. So God works for six days and then he rested. Did God rest because he was tired? No. Because God does not weary nor grow tired because God is not a man. He has infinite energy and infinite power and God can never grow weary or grow tired. So God 
did not need to rest as a man needs to rest. He did not need to take a nap. He did not need to refresh himself. Why did God rest on the seventh day? God rested on the seventh day because he was finished. He was complete. He had done everything necessary for man. His grace is sufficient for us. He had provided everything that man would need in human history in order to fulfill God's plan. And God had built into the creation everything it would need so that in his omniscience, knowing that man would fail, plunge the universe into, um, plunge the earth into sin and all of the collateral damage that that would result in throughout the entire uh, botanical kingdom, throughout the entire zoological kingdom, that God built into the systems everything that would take place once the fall occurred. So there was absolute and complete sufficiency, and the point is grace. That's the issue in the Sabbath, is grace. God provides everything. Man does nothing except rest and rely in what God has done. And you see, that is the crux of Jesus' argument. That's what the crux of Jesus' argument is going to be when he deals with the Pharisees, is what kind of rest did God have on day seven? He didn't cease completely from his labors and never labor again, but he, he ceased on the basis of grace, and he continued to sustain the universe. Now let's move through a couple of other passages in the Scriptures to build a theological framework for understanding the Sabbath. Turn with me to Matthew 25:34, and we'll just touch down there briefly on our way to Hebrews. Matthew 25:34. There Jesus says, "Then the king will say to those on his right, "Come, you, are ble- you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world." Now, the foundation of the world is a phrase that relates to the creation, the restoration of the six days in Genesis 6.1. So the kingdom was prepared in those six days. That tells us that when those six days ended, the outline of history was already established. Everything that was necessary for the entire history of humanity was built into every single system in the planet. We'll come back to that eventually. Turn to Hebrews 4.3. We're building a case, setting a framework. Hebrews 4.3. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, as I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So, when it says... Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, how does God rest? He doesn't rest by completely ceasing all labor. From that point on, God was involved in sustaining the universe, but all the factors and all the contingencies were already built into the original creation. For example, we have the problem of physical death. Physical death was not present in the original creation. That's the consequence of Adam's fall, and it does not come until after the curse. So once Adam sins and, and sin enters into the, the, all the systems on planet Earth, creation begins to be dismantled and chaos is introduced into the universe. 
Now, what that means for us, if you think about it, is that God built enough flexibility into all of the systems in days one through six to handle all the chaos that's going to enter into the system throughout human history. That would include such cataclysmic changes as the flood, as well as the fiery dismantlement and destruction of the planet during the second advent. It would include other things that are going to take place, like the resurrection body in relationship to our physical body. When Think about this. When Jesus received his resurrection body, it was not a totally new body. If it was a totally new body, the old body, the old matter, would have still been in the tomb. But the old matter was reshaped, reformed, and was the basis for forming the new body. The old body was gone. It was empty. The tomb was empty. It didn't just vaporize. It was the building material out of which God fashioned the perfect resurrection body that Jesus took with him into eternity. And the same thing will happen to us. The body will decompose and go from ashes to ashes and dust to dust. But God in his infinite power is going to pull together all of those atoms and molecules and reshape a new body for us, which will be the body that we take with us into eternity. So we have this work that goes on that God is sustaining the universe. Now turn back with me from Hebrews to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. Here we see the role of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in relationship to creation. Another very important Christological passage. In fact, I would say the three most important passages on the person and work of Jesus Christ are contained here in Colossians 1, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, And then the passage we're studying in John chapter 5. Here we read, He is the image of the invisible God. And the term there means that Jesus Christ is co-equal and has the same identical essence as God the Father. He is the firstborn of all creation. And that doesn't mean that He had had either a temporal beginning or a beginning at some point in eternity. The term firstborn is means that Jesus Christ is the preeminent one of creation. That's the meaning of prototakos there. He is the preeminent one of all creation. For by Him, that is by the Lord Jesus Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth. So God the Father is the planner, the architect, and Jesus Christ is the construction engineer. He is the one who carries out the architectural plans of God the Father, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That refers to categories of angelic creation. All things have been created by Him and for Him. Verse 17, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. This means that Jesus Christ is the one who holds the universe together moment by moment. Even when he was a baby in the, in the uh, manger, he was holding together all of the atomic structure of the universe. So in his deity, he was holding everything together, sustaining everything, controlling history. But in his hypostatic union there in the manger, he was just a baby who couldn't even talk yet. Boggles the imagination how the infinite 
could become finite. Okay, now with that as background, let's go to our passage in John 5. The Confrontation. Jesus did not just lose track of the days. He didn't misplace his day timer and think it was Friday. He knew it was the Sabbath. And Jesus made it a point to heal this man on the Sabbath. Now this man is an ungrateful wretch. And he is not a believer. And he turns on the man who heals him. Notice how he responds. The the, the Jews come up to him and say, Well, who, who did this? It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. And he answered them and said, It's not my fault. He's passing the buck, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. He's going to blame Jesus. He answered then, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Go, go find him. He's the one who, who did this. I'm just following orders. Don't, don't, um, don't accuse me. And so they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your pallet and walk? Verse 13, But he who was healed did not know who it was. He had no clue who Jesus was. This man came out of the crowd, healed him, and walked away. He doesn't have a clue. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. Now, it's a feast day. That means there's probably between 100 and 200,000 extra people in Jerusalem. And the central point of their being in Jerusalem is to go to the temple. So there are crowds now. And now there's going to be a public confrontation. And this guy has gotten up. He's been about maybe a quarter mile to a half a mile away at the pool of Bethesda. He picks up his pallet on the Sabbath. Now, it was forbidden to carry anything on the Sabbath. You couldn't carry food from your house to your neighbor's house. If you were going to share your your pishak, your Passover meal, with your neighbor, you had to get all the food over there and all the dishes over there before sunset. You couldn't, and you had to get all the all the candles lit, and you couldn't even blow them out afterwards. So you had to decide whether you were going to spend the night in the light or in the dark. Because you couldn't light candles, you couldn't carry food, you couldn't prepare food, and and the particular issue here was that you couldn't carry any form of burden, any form of a burden, including wearing your false teeth. So if you had false teeth, you just had to leave them out for the day, and you, I guess, had to uh, just make do when it came to your Passover meal. That's how hard and absurd the Passover rules had become. So there are two categories of people in Jerusalem now. There are those who are the traditionalists. We always have these two kinds of people. The traditionalists on the one hand, well, we've always done it this way, and this is what the Pharisees say, and they're our leaders, and we have to go along with them. And who is this man to challenge them on the Sabbath? The Pharisees are going to get him, and he's going to get what's due to him. And then there's probably the other crowd that has just been chafing under all these rules and regulations. And I read some of them to you last week. And it just goes on for volumes. All of the minute rules and regulations that the Pharisees had imposed on everybody. It was a tremendous burden to the people. I would hate to live in Jerusalem or in Judea at that time. It must have been a very sad place to live because their Pharisees have no sense of humor about life. And they look at everything as a major spiritual issue. And if you break even the least law, you have to go through all of the sacrifices and offerings, and you may even have to be stoned to death. And they take all of this very, very seriously. So there's another crowd there that is tired of the burden of the law, and they're watching this guy walk through town, and word is spreading like wildfire. 
as one person tells another, there's this man, a paralyzed man has been healed. Jesus did it. What's going to happen? The Pharisees are going to get him. There's going to be a big confrontation. And so everybody is suddenly focused on the temple and begins to gather around when the Pharisees come to confront Jesus. And this is what we find in verse 14. After Jesus found, the man goes to the temple and Jesus seeks him out and warns him not to sin anymore. And we saw that that indicates that, that sin was a result, uh, or his sickness was somehow related to personal sin. And he's warned not to do anything worse. And he immediately does something worse. This guy's a tattletale. As soon as he sees Jesus there, what does he do? He runs off to the Pharisees. He just can't wait to go tell them who it was that caused him to carry his pallet on the Sabbath. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. It was Jesus who did it. Go find him. Jesus made me do it. I found him. He's in the temple. Go get him. Verse 16, and for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus. And in the Greek, this word is in the imperfect tense. Now, if it was aorist, an aorist tense, it would indicate just this one instance. But John is very precise. He's only told us about one instance of Jesus violating the Sabbath. But he uses an imperfect tense here, which would include all the instances. He had been doing this. For this reason, they were continuing to persecute Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Not just this one thing, but continually. The imperfect tense. He's doing these things continually on the Sabbath. So they come up and they're persecuting him. They're harassing him with questions, just like certain lawyers are capable of doing. And Jesus answers them. Verse 17. Now, let me read the verse. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Period. End of statement. Now, to most of us, that doesn't sound like a very powerful statement. We don't catch its significance, and we say, You know, may God bless his reading of his word this morning, amen, and walk out of here. And that's how most churches would treat that. But there's a tremendous amount going on here, because look at their reaction in verse 18. For this cause, because of that one sentence Jesus uttered, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. You see, that one sentence doesn't sound like a whole lot to you or me, but it is loaded with theological content. And it was to the Pharisees that heard it, the height of blasphemy, and it is the turning point in the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees. And because he makes that one statement, it is from this point on that their agenda is to see that he is killed. It's this one statement. So I think we need to take a little time to examine this statement and what has been going on. Remember, Jesus has been charged with a Sabbath violation. Now, we know that the origin of the Sabbath is to teach grace. So Jesus is making an issue here between grace and the religious crowd and their legalism. And he begins by saying, My Father is working until now. And he uses the present middle indicative of ergodzomai, which means to work. It's a uh, 
it's a deponent verb, or it's a, uh, yeah, it's a deponent verb, so it has an active, even though it's in a middle form, it has an active meaning, so for all practical purposes, it's a present active indicative. And what Jesus is saying is, my Father continues to work even to the present. That's the thrust of that present tense, continuous action. My Father continues to work even to the present. He worked for six days, he rested, but there is the continual sustaining work of God. He says, you may think that he goes to sleep when the sun goes down on Friday, but he doesn't. The very fact that you're standing there breathing and living, and that you haven't flown off the planet because gravity ceased, indicates that God is continuing to work. And then he says, even until now, literal translation from the Greek, not just until now, but even to this very present moment, God has not stopped His sustaining work in the universe. And then Jesus says, and I myself am working. Two words in the Greek which just blow the lid off the whole situation. Looks like this, kago, which is a uh, contraction of chi and ego for I, K-A-I-E-G-O, which is first person personal pronoun, ergodzomai. E-R-G-A-Z-O-M-A-I, which means to work, to do, to produce, to make. Its synonym... One of its synonyms is this word, poieo, P-O-I-E-O, which means also to do or to make. Or as we've seen in James chapter 1, it means not just to be hearers only, but also appliers, doers of the word. So, Jesus says, and I myself am working. Now, if Jesus had said, I am working poieo, nobody would have gotten upset. Because he would have been using a different verb indicating a different kind of working. But Jesus says, I'm doing exactly the same thing as the Father. And he uses a present middle indicative, same tense, same morphology. What's the point? The point that he makes is, The Father continues to work in His sustaining ministry even until now, and I'm doing exactly the same thing. And that was a slap in the face to the Pharisees. Because Jesus was saying, if I stopped working on the Sabbath like you want me to, you would vaporize in an instant. Because I'm God, and I'm the one that's holding the universe together right now. I'm the one that's holding you on this planet. I'm the one that's allowing you to breathe. I'm the one that's allowing your heart to pump and the blood to go through your veins. I am full, undiminished deity. I am equal with God. And the Pharisees understand completely what Jesus is saying, and that's indicated by their response. For this cause, therefore, the therefore shows the causal relationship or the logical relationship between the two events. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking. And here we have a, an imperfect tense indicating continual action. They were seeking all the more to kill him. This is going to be their MO for the next 
two to two and a half years until he is finally crucified. They are now involved. And they are going to find any reason they can in order to have Jesus executed and removed from the scene. Now, the last phrase is illuminating. He says, they, they not only seek to kill him because he is breaking the Sabbath, and this is from the Greek word luo, L-L-U-O, which means to loose. And sometimes it can mean to break, it can mean to release. It's the basic word we learn all our paradigms in in first year Greek. And basically it means that he is loosening the regulations of the Sabbath. He's relaxing them. And it's not that he's just in complete violation. He's relaxing all these tight law codes and they just are apoplectic over it. But that's not all. They also understand that he's calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Now let's talk about this word equal. It comes from the Greek word isos. I-S-O-S. And this is the same word we find in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. Hold your place here and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. This is one of the most significant passages about Christology in the New Testament. Starts in verse 5 with the mandate, have this attitude, have this mentality, have this thinking in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. So He is our example. He's our role model. He's the only role model we are to have. Who, although He existed in the form of God, and form here is the Greek word morphe, which has a rich history in Greek philosophical thought. thought. It's where we get our word form, like in the form of a word, it's morphology. To change something is to change its form, to metamorphosize something. Uh, That's where morpho comes from. But in Platonic thought, it had to do with the inner essence of something. And so it has that meaning here. And when Paul says he he existed in the form of God, it's referring to his inner abiding nature. So, although he existed with identical essence of deity, he did not regard equality, isos, the same word that is used by John in John chapter 5, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, or literally a thing to be seized. See, what was the temptation in the Garden of Eden? If you, God just, you won't die. God's lying to you. He doesn't want you to be like Him. If you eat from the fruit, you'll be like God. And so Adam and Eve thought, oh, this is a good thing. I want to be like God. And so they grabbed after the fruit. In contrast, in humility, Jesus is God, but doesn't seize it or hold on to it or grab for it. He is willing to voluntarily restrict the exercise of His deity. That's the next verse but emptied himself. And here we have the Greek word kanao. K-E-N-O-O. 
O, the aorist active indicative here, and it means to restrict, and it gave rise to a major theological controversy called the kenosis problem, which has to do with the, the liberals came along and said, well, he gave up his deity. He, he abdicated it. He gave it away, he, or he reduced himself. And uh, he emptied himself. He, he somehow gave up his deity, but he never gave up his deity. He was always full deity. In fact, the way to express it is he voluntarily restricted his deity. He's still holding the earth together. When he changed the water into, the, into wine, he was showing that he had the same power to create that God had from himself, from his own deity. He used all of his omni characteristics while he was on the earth, while he was in the incarnation. He demonstrated his omniscience when he turned to the woman at the well and said, You have said, Well, the man you're living with is not your husband. You have had five husbands, and the one you're living with is not your husband. He demonstrated omniscience. He demonstrated omnipotence by changing the water into, into wine and by healing the cripple. He indicated and he was also omnipresent because he was still holding the universe together. That never ceased. That never changed. It's indicated by our passage where he says he is still working just like God the Father is even to this very moment. So he is claiming equality with God. Now what does he mean by equality? There is a good sense and a bad sense to the term equality. In the ancient world, as has been true for, for many centuries, there would be somebody who was a, a, a trained in a certain skill, and the way that was passed on was you would take an apprentice. So in Jesus' particular case, because his father was a carpenter, Jesus would be apprenticed to Joseph. And as Jesus grew up, he would learn all the various uh, aspects of carpentry. He would learn what tools to use to make what kind of cuts, how to join things together, what kind of woods were good for certain types of, of construction and different things like that. And in the case of any, any apprentice, at some point the apprentice thinks that he knows as much as the master and that he is equal with the master. And sooner or later you always have some smart mouth adolescent that comes along and says, well, I'm now your equal. And in that sense, the term equality means I am now independent of you to do whatever I want to do. So when some people say they want to be equal, and we have seen this in our culture over the last two or three decades, when they say I want equality, they don't want equality in the good sense of the term. They want equality in the insubordinate sense of the term. They want to go their own way and be independent of everybody else and make their own decisions. This is not the sense in which Jesus is making himself equal to the Father. When he says that he is equal to the Father, what he is saying is he has identical essence with the Father. God is sovereign, righteous, just, love, eternal life, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, immutability, and veracity. All of these attributes are true of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. They are co-equal and co-eternal. They have the same identical attributes. They differ in their in 
person and in role. So that the Son is completely equal to the Father, and yet He functions in a way that is subordinate to the Father. He recognizes authority orientation. Modern man and modern thought, especially as you've seen it in the women's liberation movement out of the 60s, was equality and subordination are mutually exclusive concepts. If I'm equal with you, I can't be your subordinate. If, and, and so we have the idea of equality in the sense of rebelliousness exemplified in that particular movement. What the Bible teaches us is that you have with the Father and the Son equal essence. They are equal in person, but they have distinct roles and they one functions in a subordinate role to the other. The same is true of God the Holy Spirit. This is done from their volition and does not indicate any lack of equality among the persons of the Trinity. They are one in essence and three in person. Now the early church had a hard time dealing with the equality of Jesus and the relationship of Jesus uh, to the Father. And so in the early church you had a a man by the name of Arius who was a uh, pastor from North Africa and he taught that while God was eternal here in eternity past, can you see that okay? In eternity past, from eternity past through time, that Christ was created at some point in time. So Jesus had a beginning. And there was a little phrase that Arius used, there was a time when Christ was not. And Arius was a musician. This is why you always have to watch your hymns. So he would write little choruses that were sung all over the Roman Empire. There was a time when Christ was not. Well, this got the attention of a man named Athanasius, who was the bishop of Alexandria down in North Africa. And he said, Arius is a heretic. And this is wrong. Jesus has to be completely equal with God or there is no salvation. Because only God can have a sacrifice that has infinite value A man that is pure human, a Savior that is not God, can only die for one person. But a Savior that is true humanity can die for the entire human race. And so they had a major theological controversy, and it was resolved at the Council of Nicaea, which which is where we get the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father all-governing, creator of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and we'll get to this title soon, as to the significance of the term, the title, Son of God, which is not showing anything other than His equality to God. If you understand the Old Testament background, when Jesus claimed to be the Son, which He does in verse 19, that is a claim to equality with God. The Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, is only begotten, that is, from the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created. Notice they draw a distinction. Begotten is an eternal, describes the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. Not created of the same essence as the Father. Identical essence. They are co-infinite and co-eternal. Same essence as the Father, through whom all things came into being, both in heaven and in the earth. This is describing Jesus. All things came into being, both in heaven and in the earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate, becoming human. He suffered 
And the third day he rose and ascended into the heavens, and he will come to judge both the living and the dead, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. Those of you who may have grown up in a creedal church and recited that over and over again, that is a wonderful statement and an accurate statement and is the foundation for our Christology because it was only at that point that the equality of Jesus Christ with the Father was clearly articulated and that was the first time it was articulated in human history and that was in 325 A.D. Now, it's biblical, but in terms of its theological formulation, that was the first, first statement. So, Jesus is fully equal with God. Now, modern liberal theology does not see Jesus as God. Modern liberal theology, when you talk to your neighbor, the guy down the street, he's going to come up with one of three options. When I give a funeral message, I always emphasize this. People come up with one of three answers when you say, who was Jesus? The first is that he was a great teacher. He was a wonderful teacher and a, a great man who was to be respected and followed but not worshipped. He's a great man, great teacher, great religious innovator. Secondly, they'll say he was a good man, sincere. He had um, strong convictions and the courage of his convictions, so much so that he was willing to die for them. And we need to emulate that and be willing to die for our convictions. And that's what's called the, um, the, the moral view of the atonement. And then the third view is that Jesus is a good example for us. He is our example, and we need, and this is very close to the previous one, it's a little different, but we need to follow in his footsteps and follow his example. But what they all have in common is that he is not God, but he is just a good, wonderful man, and we need to emulate him in one way or another. Now, is that a valid conclusion? When you're witnessing to somebody, if they're going to come up with that kind of an answer, you need to challenge them at the very core. Because Jesus said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. Jesus made this statement right here in verse 17, claiming equality with God. Now, the person you're witnessing to may not have any education or background, and they may be a biblical idiot, but you have to point out to them that the Jews understood exactly what Jesus was saying and they were ready to stone him. That's why they had this harsh reaction. The, the uh, average English reader may not think he's saying much, but the Jews certainly knew what he was saying. And in John chapter 8, he makes the same kind of statement when he says, Before Abraham was, I am, indicating his eternality and that he was one with God. So we are left with only two options. One... Jesus was deceptive. He either was knowingly deceiving everyone, in which case he is a liar and the worst liar of all history because he has deceived millions and millions of people down through the ages and, and given them hope for eternal life when there was none. Or he is an unintentional liar, which means he is self-deceived or crazy. Now, none of the evidence about Jesus' life in the Scriptures would indicate that he is either a liar or self-deceived. So if he is not telling a falsehood, then he is telling the truth. And if he is telling the truth, then he is exactly who he claims to be, 
which is one with God, the eternal God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, and the one who came to earth incarnate to die on the cross as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sins that anyone who believes in him will have eternal life. And that's the issue. And that's what you have to make clear. And this is one of the greatest arguments that is set forth in, uh, throughout the, the discipline of apologetics in order to demonstrate that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be and why this is important. And you need to master that and put that in your arsenal so that the next time you get ready to witness somebody to somebody, when the opportunity pre- presents itself, you can challenge them on this particular point. I remember one time when I used this in a funeral message. It was a very interesting funeral. I had, uh, I think I had performed a, a funeral for somebody who called in. They went to the funeral home. This, this fellow had died, rather young, had a heart attack in his mid-50s. And um, the family went to the funeral home. And at one time I had, I had worked at this funeral home briefly. And they didn't have a pastor, but they were believers. And so the guy at the funeral home called me up and I did the funeral. Three years later, somebody who was at that funeral said, that guy was pretty good. I like what he said. I want him to do my husband's funeral. So I went back. I had no contact whatsoever with these people. And it turned out that this fellow was a minor celebrity in the sports scene in Houston. And there were about 500 people standing room only in the funeral home. And I went through this argument point by point. And I had three guys on the back row. I thought the pew was going to fall over. They were vibrating in hostility so much because they just hated hearing it. I was challenging their beliefs to the very core. And that's what you'll run into. It's what we saw in the first hour. Religion and anti-religion hates grace. And you will always run into that antagonism and that hostility just as Jesus did with the Pharisees in John chapter 5. Next week, we'll continue with the discourse about the Son of God and all that Jesus has to say in the next three or four verses. And you won't want to miss this because these verses, this discourse, is packed with incredible truth about our Lord Jesus Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the clarity of it the certainty that we receive from looking at Your Word and understanding it, and the confidence that is built as we understand who our Lord Jesus Christ is and all that He has done for us. Father, if there is anyone here this morning who is not sure of their eternal destiny, is without hope, without eternal life, we pray that right now they would take the opportunity to accept this marvelous free gift of Jesus Christ as their Savior. They don't have to do anything to earn it or deserve it. They don't have to join a church, give money, or go through any kind of religious machinations. All they have to do is simply accept the free gift by telling you, forming words and thought alone, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins. That's all that is necessary. The Scripture says, He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Father, we thank you for what we have learned this morning about our Lord and pray that it would challenge us and stimulate us to greater adoration and worship and obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.